0: to Jeremiah chapter 34, Jeremiah chapter 34, the title this evening is King Zedekiah Warned by God, King Zedekiah Warned by God, chapter 34 reports things that happened during the closing months of Judah's life while they were still free. The early stages of the final attack on Jerusalem by the Babylonians has already started. The year was 588 B.C. And King Nebuchadnezzar's army was successfully conquering the kingdom of Judah as as God's judgment for their idolatry and their turning away from him. The last two fortified cities were about to fall. And that is Lachish, which was about 23 miles from Jerusalem, and Azekah, about 18 miles from Jerusalem. And not only did King Nebuchadnezzar bring his own just invincible Babylonian troops, but he also demanded that the subservient countries that he conquered would send their share of recruits to join in the battle. And so in a sense, the entire Near East was attacking God's chosen people. Now verses 1 through 7 is a warning to King Zedekiah. And a warning to King Zedekiah about what's going to happen to him. God gave weak this weak king Zedekiah another chance to repent and to save the city and the temple from ruin, from destruction. But King Zedekiah wouldn't listen, and we know that Jonah and David and Peter they were they were given second chances. And many are, giving, have, are given even more than second chances. Jeremiah warned him that the royal family and the court officials would not escape God's judgment and that he'd be taken captive to Babylon where he would die in peace. Just one, you know, God was just looking for that one act of faith and courage from King Zedekiah that would have saved the city from destruction. And it would have saved the people from being massacred. But King Zedekiah, man, he was afraid of his counselors. And he was only a puppet in their hands. So let's begin with chapter 34, verses 1 through 3. And the word says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people, fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, "'and tell him, thus says the Lord, "'Behold, I will give this city "'into the hand of the king of Babylon, "'and he shall burn it with fire. "'And you shall not escape from his hand, "'but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand, "'and your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon, "'and he shall speak with you face to face.'" And you shall go to Babylon. So, King Nebuchadnezzar was joined in the fight by all of the kingdoms of the earth that were under his authority. And these would have been his puppets who were required to provide military help for him against their enemies. And as part of this agreement to help King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, it was that he had to protect them from the enemies, from their enemies. So with Nebuchadnezzar's much better armies, he was defeating all of the opposition in Judah, while at the same time he attacked Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. And during the height of the battle, the Lord sent Jeremiah to King Zedekiah with another warning. And we saw that in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. He told King Zedekiah that the city was going to be taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and burned here in verse 2. And, the, and King Zedekiah himself would be taken to Babylon as a prisoner of war. And since the Lord told Jeremiah to go to King Zedekiah, Jeremiah couldn't have been in prison at that time. So the events in chapter 34 must have happened before chapters 32 and 33. Now from the demonstration of the faithfulness of God's word of judgment... In chapters 34 through 39, Jeremiah's readers should be assured that his words of hope and comfort are also reliable. Just as God's words of judgment are reliable, so are God's words of hope and comfort. King Zedekiah wasn't as strong-willed as King Jehoiakim, who was before him. And he showed his weak character, that is, King Zedekiah showed his weak character when he said that he couldn't stop Jeremiah's arrest. He admitted that he was afraid of his own people if he surrendered to the enemy like Jeremiah was advising him to do uh, and and we'll see later in in chapter 38. King Zedekiah's wavering cost him his throne and it brought about Jerusalem's destruction. Jeremiah's warning about what was going to happen to the king was literally fulfilled. And it says there, notice in verse 3, he shall see. King King Zedekiah is going to see the eyes of the king of Babylon, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. King Zedekiah is going to see King Nebuchadnezzar with his own eyes. And in addition to that, King Nebuchadnezzar would speak with him, verse 3 says, face to face. Face to face literally means mouth to mouth. In other words, he's going to speak to you, King Zedekiah. King Nebuchadnezzar realized that he had to deal with the rebellious puppet king quickly and harshly as a warning to other puppet kingdoms who might think about rebelling against King Nebuchadnezzar. And even though we're not told what happened to King Zedekiah in Babylon, he probably withered away and died in a Babylonian prison. Now let's look at verses 4 and 5. And it says, Yet here... The word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. The Lord added the kings uh, added that, the king, that King Zedekiah wouldn't be executed by the sword. But he would die peacefully, a natural death instead of a violent one. Now, burning incense was a custom. The Israelites would burn sweet-smelling incense, uh, spices, in honor of the dead. Verses 6 through 7. And he goes on to say, Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all of these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. So Jeremiah, he delivers his message to King Zedekiah, while Jerusalem and other cities of Judah were under attack by King Nebuchadnezzar's army. And the only strong cities or fortified cities in Judah left in Judah that hadn't surrendered were Lachish and Ezekiel. And then in verses eight through 22, these verses are a message to the people covering the treacherous dealings with slaves. And the events covered in these verses, they took place when there was a temporary break in, in, in the battle. And slaveholders had freed their slaves during this temporary break in the battle. But here was the problem. The people thought that because there was this this break in the siege, this break in the battle, the people thought that the danger was now past. So what they had done, they took their slaves back. This was contrary to the covenant that they made with each other before God. Look at verses 8 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that is the slaves, verse 9, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Verse 10, now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant Heard that everyone should, should set free his male and female slaves. Notice that no one should keep them in bondage any more. They obeyed and let them go. But afterward, that is after this siege, this break in the battle, afterward they changed their minds and made the female and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Now, If an Israelite didn't pay his debts, sometimes that person would sell himself or his family or his children to the one that he owed the money to to, uh, for a certain amount of years to kind of pay off his debt. Their servitude would pay off their debt. But there was a provision that was in the Mosaic law for the freeing of Israelite slaves after six years of service. Now, lifetime service of a Hebrew was against the law. And it seems like the slave owners here had been ignoring the law. But during this siege, mentioned in verse 8, King Zedekiah, it says, made a covenant with the people proclaiming freedom for the slaves. Now, they may have set them free because economically it was too hard to take care of them. You know, feeding them clothing them and, and you know all of the, that they needed to do and especially while they were under siege or they could help defend the city or they thought that they'd find favor with God by setting them free but after a break in the battle according to verses 21 and 22 they broke the law that said to release them and they took them back the slaves that they freed they took them back because they probably thought the danger was over and that the Babylonian army wouldn't come back. Now, nobody knows why they agreed to become slaves again. These slaves, nobody, you know, no one knows why they agreed to be slaves again. Now, they must, because they must have stayed in the city thinking that their former, their former owners wouldn't break that covenant. And that they wouldn't make them slaves again. Now, in verses 12 through 16, God deals with these people. He rebukes them for the, promise, the broken promise of making them slaves again. Look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, okay, in result, as a result of them you know, breaking this covenant, they set the slaves free, and then they took them back and, and, and made them slaves again. It says, Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and, and I and said to them, At the end of seven years, that every man set free his Hebrew brother, who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. So, God was not very happy with these slave owners. That is what they did. And he reminded them, hey, I made a covenant with your forefathers. When I brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And these people who had experienced slavery in their past, they should have had a more compassionate attitude toward the others who were enslaved. And Jeremiah reminded them that the law required that every seventh year, they must set free any Hebrew who had sold himself to them, according to verse 14. And then after serving for six years, the slave was to be set free. But he wasn't legally free until the end of the seventh year, which was considered to be a year of rest for the slave. Verses 15 and 16. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. God was pleased at the beginning when the slave owners decided to set their slaves free. Now, what they did was right in God's eyes. And he reminded them of the seriousness of their commitment by making their their covenant in the temple. Now, he was angry because they turned away and just ignored their commitment they made to God. And by rejecting such a serious agreement, the effect of it was to profane God's name according to verse 16. Again, notice in verse 16, he says, Then you turned and profaned my name. Why? Because you brought every one of those slaves back that we agreed you agreed that you would let go. In other words, King Zedekiah profaned God's name. By truly giving the people their freedom, King Zedekiah, as king of Judah, could have shown the world he was different. That he served the true and the living God. And of everything that said, and, and this is what the Lord shared with me with this as I was reviewing it and studying again this afternoon. The one word that we should remember from this whole thing is different. Different. King Zedekiah, as a king of Judah, could have shown the world he was different than all the others. That he served the true and the living God. And we are to be different. That's the problem today. Many of the people of God are not different or they're not as different as they should be compared to the world. But for Zedekiah, it was just to show he didn't keep his promise. He not only disgraced himself, but he brought disrespect upon himself. But he profaned God's name, which is the worst of all. The word profane here means to pierce or to pollute. In other words, because because King Zedekiah was not different, because he didn't keep the covenant of God, he didn't keep the word of God, he pierced God and polluted God's name. It's the life of the Christian. Remember this. And I've said it before, it's the life of the Christian that the world will always look at to form its opinion of you, the Christian, and to form its opinion of the church and to form its opinion of Christianity and to form its opinion of God. You and I is what the world looks at and then forms its opinion on Christians, the church, Christianity, and God. It said that Billy Graham met a leading atheist in Europe one day. And the man explained to Billy Graham why he wasn't a Christian. He said that if he truly believed as Christians say they believe, and it is that everyone must face eternity and give an account for how he has lived, and that Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection was the only way to God, and a secure eternity in heaven, and that all who don't receive Christ's provision for their sin would spend eternity in a place called hell, then he said he would not rest day or night from warning everyone and urging everyone to respond to Christ. But he continued to say, when I see the way most Christians live, I'm totally convinced that what they say they believe is not true, and this is why I am an atheist. God's name and the Lord's work is hurt more by those who say they're Christians than by the heathens in the world. Because we say we know God, we love God, we believe His word, and we're to be different. They don't see the difference. Again, God's name and the work The Lord is hurt more by those who say they know Jesus than by all the godless professors in our heathen colleges today and all the bad press from the media. The lives of those who call themselves Christians can and do hurt the cause of Christ more than those who are not believers. God says, King Zedekiah, you have pierced my name, you have polluted my name. And then verses 17 through 22 God covers the punishment for not freeing the slaves. Look at verses 17 through 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms... I'm sorry. I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant... Who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth, so as a result of disobeying God thereby piercing his name and polluting his name they're going to be punished in one of the harshest rebukes of the people found in the book of jeremiah the lord announced the terrible fate of the rebellious people they hadn't given freedom to the slaves and so by using sarcasm god was now going to give them freedom but it wasn't going to be the kind of freedom that they desire but it would be freedom to fall. Okay, here's your choice. Here's, here's, here's how your freedom's going to come. You can fall by the sword. All right? You can, you can uh, you know, fall by the plague, or you can fall by famine. The harshness of God's punishment would be seen by the other nations as the wrath of God on his own people. And that would make Judah disgusting to the heathen. Can you imagine? judah god's people would be disgusting to the heathen because god had to bring wrath on them for being disobedient to his covenant the 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 punishment for those who broke their covenant would be more severe than just a slap on the hand god said in verse 18 he treat them like a calf that they cut in two by making them walk between the pieces in other words this was the way that men made a covenant or a contract in that day They would take a sacrifice, the calf, that's what they're talking about here. They would take the sacrifice, they would take the calf, they would cut it in half. they put one half of the calf on one side, they'd take the other half of the calf and put it on the other side, and and then the men would walk between those two halves of the calf, they'd walk between those two halves holding hands, putting one half of the animal on the side and one on the other, and then joining hands. This is also the way God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And you could say it's kind of like going to the notary public in that day. King Zedekiah, the princes, the priests, and the people had all broken God's covenant by not setting the slaves free. So God pronounces this judgment on them. All of the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem and the court officials would be handed over to their enemies, verse 20 says they wouldn 't be given respectable, respectable burials now, for the jew and that it, it, you know to not receive a respected burial, this was something that was considered to be a horrible thing by the hebrews their un, Their unburied bodies would be just left on the ground and they would become bird food and they 'd become food for the wild animals and whatever lessons. Whatever other lessons and warnings may be learned from God's angry announcement of punishment here it's a reminder to us that God takes covenants serious Now now this is the, God doesn't ask us or require us to make any vows to him He doesn't require us to make promises But his word does say it's better not to make one than to make one and not keep it Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 5, Solomon said, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. He doesn't honor the deferred payment plan. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. He says, Pay what you have vowed, because it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Solomon warned about two sins here. The first was making the vow when you have no intention on keeping it in other words lying to god the second sin was making the vow but delaying and keeping it hoping you could get out of it and god would forget about it when the priest came to collect the promised sacrifice or gift the person would say oh please forget about my vow it was a mistake i just you know i i just spoke rashly but god hears what we say and he holds us to our promises Unless they were so foolish that he could only write them off as, you know, obviously it couldn't be done. If providence keeps us from fulfilling what we promised, like maybe you made a promise and then we got sick and couldn't do something about it. God understands and he'll release us. But if we make vows only to impress other people or maybe bribe the Lord. Lord, you know, you just do this for me and I'll do this for you. Lord, if you'll answer my prayers, I'll give an extra 50 bucks to missions. Then we're going to pay for our thoughtless words. A lot of times, when people are in a tight spot, hey, they make those kind of promises to God. I remember the old days; <laughs> I did. Lord, you get me out of this one, man! I'll whatever, and you know, I went on my merry way. Lord, if you'll heal me, I'll do anything. And when they're healed, they forget about the promise they made to God. People make empty promises all the time. Because they live kind of in a a, religi- a religious dream world, in other words, they think that that words and emotions are just as good as the actual deeds in other you know, you know I, I say these words and and oh i just I, I feel good about them you know I, I I really you know my emotions I just feel like you know uh, this is the right thing. I remember before I got saved and I used to go to church and and I' get out of there feeling really good. It wasn't five minutes later I was out. Doing my thing again, but I felt good. I felt like I did something good and, and God was happy with me, and, and you know, but that's a, a religious dream world. Words and emotions aren't, aren't as good as the actual deeds, their worship isn't serious to them, so their words aren't serious either. They're not dependable. Many people enjoy the good feelings that they get when they make their promises to God, but they're doing more harm to themselves than good. They like to dream about, you know, fulfilling their vows, but they never get around to it. A.W. Tozer said this, too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but they're not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. He was right on in that. You know, we we enjoy feeling right, but we don't really want to be inconvenienced uh, in in actually being right. In other words, they practice a make-believe religion that doesn't glorify God or build Christian character. The psalmist said in Psalm Psalm 66, 13 and 14, he said, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Notice that. The psalmist here, he says, man, when he he was in trouble, he made these promises to God. I will go into your house, Lord. I will offer these burnt offerings. I will pay my vows, which I have uttered from my mouth when I was in trouble. You see, pay your vows to the fullest. Don't cheat God of the vows that you made to him. Remember, in the Old Testament, you couldn't serve God that your lame and imperfect sacrifices. God wouldn't accept them. Remember when the, when, when the, when the, 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 the offerer would come to the altar, the priest would expect, inspect the sacrifice, the lamb or the, the goat or whatever you brought, and he'd look at it, and if there was a cut, if there was a disease, if there was some infirmity, it wouldn't be accepted. God wouldn't accept, uh, accept our, our imperfect sacrifices. God won't accept them. And if we have at any time made vows and promises to God, we have to make sure to keep them to the best of our ability. Here's an illustration. Erasmus, a Christian scholar, tells a story about a passenger at sea who, who was caught up in a very dangerous situation due to a raging storm at sea. So this, this, this man was, was, was you know, in, in a raging storm at sea. And he was, you know, scared to death. After the religion that he had been brought up in, he sincerely made a promise to the Virgin Mary that if she would be pleased to rescue him from his present danger and and she would calm the sea and get him safely back to shore, he said he would offer to her to burn at her altar a massive candle. A massive candle as thick as the mast of the ship when he was in danger. But when this man got safely to shore and had escaped all the danger of the raising sea, he was neglectful of his promise and instead of of, of burning to her a great massive candle, he offered a small slender candle and thought that would make her happy. Now, what this is illustrating is that this to some degree represents to us the way we deal with the God of heaven. We promise great things, but we perform very little ones. We make extravagant vows to the Lord, but then we're very cheap in keeping them. That shouldn't be the way it is. We need to be careful about all things to remember the past circumstances that you were in and reflect on your behavior at that time. And you need to remember the promises you made at that moment in that situation and the mercies that you were given, that you received And you need to offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High God as He has clearly commanded. Psalm 50, 15, He says, call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. And then He says, and you shall glorify me. (laughs) Look at that. Call upon me when you're in trouble. That's great. I'll deliver you, but you shall glorify me. When we rob the Lord of the worship and the honor that he's due, we're also robbing ourselves at the same time of the spiritual blessings that he gives those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Verses 21 through 22. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. But I, I'm sorry, behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So the chapter closes with a further warning to King Zedekiah about what's going to happen to him. For the first time in the chapter, an explanation is given for the retaking of the slaves. Again, the Babylonian army had withdrawn for a little while, to drive away the Egyptian army that had come to help the city under attack. So the people figured that the danger was gone. So what did they do? They returned to business as usual. But the Lord was going to bring the Babylonians back to fight against the city and burn it down. His wrath, God's wrath, was going to extend to other towns that would be so devastated that nobody would be able to live in them. And this chapter shows once again the deceitfulness and the hardness of the hearts of the leaders and the people of Jerusalem. The broken covenant, taking back their slaves, serves as one more reason for the punishment that was already ordered. God is not mocked. Whatever is sown will also be reaped. Judah had sown to the wind, now Judah would reap the whirlwind. And 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 the idea of sowing and reaping, hey, when it comes to behavior, it's used many times in the Bible. And Hosea uses it twice. So in their idolatry and their political connections, the Israelites were trying to sow seeds that would that that would produce a good harvest, but instead they were seeds that were sown to the wind. They were just in vain. And they would reap nothing but the whirlwind. So nothing could stop God's judgment. The harvest would be more powerful than the seed. So, in closing, King Zedekiah and his leaders should have been different. They should have been different than everybody else because they served the true and the living God. They should have been examples, they should have been models of godly leadership. But they were as wishy-washy as the people. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military generals who ever lived, conquered almost the entire known world with his vast army. One night during a campaign, he couldn't sleep. And he left his tent to walk around the campgrounds. And as he was walking, he came across a soldier that was asleep on guard duty. That's a serious offense, and if you've been in the military, you know how serious it is. The penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was, in some cases, instant death. And the commanding officer sometimes poured kerosene on the sleeping soldier and lit it. The soldier began to wake up as Alexander the Great approached him. Now, the soldier, recognizing who was standing in front of him, the young man feared for his life. Alexander the Great asked the soldier, do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard duty? Yes, sir. The soldier responded in a quivering voice. Soldier, what's your name? Demanded Alexander the Great. He said, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great repeated the question, what is your name? My name is Alexander the Great, sir. Alexander the Great repeated the question again. What is your name? My name is Alexander, sir, the soldier repeated a third time and more boldly, loudly than than the great Alexander asked. What is your name? A third time, the soldier meekly said, my name is Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great then looked the young soldier straight in the eye and he said, soldier, he said with intensity, either change your name or change your conduct. I can hear Jesus say, soldier, change your name or change your conduct. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we are to be different. We are to be, we are soldiers of Christ. And Father, help us to be what we're called to be, Lord. Let us answer the call of duty, God. Father, let us be different. Let us be Christ-like, God, in every way, God. Yes, it's difficult. Nobody said it was going to be easy, but it's possible. You've given us the Holy Spirit for power. You've given us the word for direction and counsel, God. You've given us prayer. All of these resources to live for you, Lord. Help us to be different, Lord. So, Father, we look to you now, and may we remember again to, to that our behavior, to bring it in line with the life of Christ, to be transformed, not to be conforming. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your mercies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Sunday morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul defends his authority. And as always, read ahead and see how God might minister to you. God bless you guys.